Hi there, Megan Thompson here with Megan Thompson Coaching and today we are going to cover the hidden meaning behind your embarrassment from your child's big explosive emotions. If you're parenting a sensitive child and they are hitting, kicking, screaming, yelling, throwing things, running away and any of this is happening at home or in public or both, then it is important for you to listen up because we're going to, to speak about your response to that internally, your internal response, what to do when you feel embarrassed of your child's behavior. Hello and welcome to How to Parent Your Highly Sensitive Child Like a Ninja. I'm your host, Megan Thompson, licensed clinical professional counselor and registered play therapist supervisor. We at MTC teach parents how to eliminate the daily meltdown and shutdown cycle for your sensitive children and teens. Highly sensitive children make up 15 to 20% of the population, according to research that has been gathered for over a century. And this podcast answers one question. How can you raise emotionally intelligent children, stop walking on eggshells, and help your child express their needs safely without punishments, yelling, or coddling. If you wanna know the answer, you're in the right place. So here at MTC, we help parents of highly sensitive kids break out of the meltdown cycle in as little as eight weeks by noticing that the meltdown cycle is a family dynamic problem. And as parents, you lead the show. So you can become the therapeutic change agent for your child and in fact, you already are. And so if you are missing those skills and are feeling like there's a gap between your knowledge and your action and implementation, then it is important to pay attention to what we talk about here at MTC because this is the clear piece to breaking out of the cycle, uh, owning your part of the equation, right? So Highly sensitive kids, we know, are kids who are experiencing the world on a deep level. They are thinking about the world on a deep level. They're thinking about their own personal world, their own personal experiences, right? They are physically experiencing the world deeper. They might have uh, auditory processing sensitivity, which means loud noises are hard. They might have Um, physical sensitivity where uh, they can't wear nice, cozy, comfy sweaters like the one that I'm wearing (laughs) because perhaps it feels too heavy or too thick or or whatever it is uh, in that day, right? They might have a hard time noticing shifts in people's body language if they don't know how to manage their own disappointment or if they are stuck in shame, which is also a symptom of the meltdown cycle, which tends to lead to anxiety and uh, a a child who is having a hard time making decisions because they're really, 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 really working hard to make sure that they make the right decision for fear of upsetting others or fear of being upset in themselves. So if any or all of these experiences are something that your child is experiencing, then I have news for you. This dynamic is not your fault. Uh, Traditional parenting is definitely a method that keeps families stuck in this cycle. And so we're going to talk about one of the side effects of the meltdown cycle that we hear so, so frequently, all right? Now, if your child is having a meltdown, I wanna talk about the difference first and foremost between an external meltdown and an internal meltdown, okay? So an external meltdown is a a child who is hitting, kicking, screaming, yelling, uh, anything that you see outside their body and their emotions are coming out of their body. So they're hitting, they're throwing things, 
Uh, they're yelling at somebody else. Uh, they're yelling at themselves outwardly. Okay, these are all external meltdowns. Internal meltdown is when a child is typically holding it all in. Eventually they'll, they'll explode, but they're actually having meltdowns throughout the day internally. They're spinning out. They're having a hard time staying focused. Uh, they're typically proposed to have anxiety problems. They tend to isolate. They tend to shut down or refuse. And at home, you may hear your child struggle internally by verbalizing self-deprecating language. I hate myself. I'm a bad kid. You guys would be better off without me. I want a different family. You don't love me. Uh, I hate you, etc. All of those self-destructive uh, phrases that a child will use indicates that the child is typically internalizing their emotions much more regularly than you see. So you might have a child who is uh, on the outside of, of their world on the, from an outside looking in perspective, uh, performing very well. You might even say that your child is thriving in a school setting or in sports or both. However, when they come home, they lose it, right? So this is a stress response. If you're holding it all in at work and uh, you're, you have a people-pleasing tendency or a workaholic tendency, then you will take your anger out on your family. So it is important to understand that that's not healthy work. Uh, that's not a healthy way to manage your, your daily responsibilities. And so the same mentality is relevant for children. Now, children, for all intents and purposes, uh, school is their work, right? Play, one might argue, being a play therapist, that's my argument. Play is actually a child's work, but you don't do a lot of play at school, so we're going <laughs> to just take, uh, take a look at modern-day society perception of what work is for kids. And, um, and, and pay attention to the, your child's responsibilities. So when a child notices intellectually, they think about uh, their responsibilities and they assess that it is not socially appropriate to lose it in a public setting, you might see more um, behavior where your child is losing their mind only at home. And yet it is very likely that you still feel embarrassed by this behavior. So I'm not going to um, uh, limit the topic today to parents who are only embarrassed by their child's explosive behavior, uh, because I think that that sells the dynamic short. We have a lot of parents who are embarrassed by their child's home behavior, even if nobody else knows. So things that I hear often are, you know, you would never know, or her teacher would never know, or his coach would never know how much we're struggling at home. And this brings a certain level of shame for you as a parent, a certain level of embarrassment. Uh, but it also speaks to the, um, the importance of your values. You may value uh, keeping your child connected and keeping your child uh, plugged into certain activities because you want your child to have a well-rounded life, right? So there's this double life that you might feel like you're experiencing. And this can play into that sense of embarrassment as a parent because you are working very hard, right? Whether you're working in the home or outside of the home in a, in a position, a career or a business owner perhaps. And you are managing yourself, right? You're meeting your responsibilities. And yet it's very difficult to teach the same thing to your child. And so when we think about stress management and perfectionism and worry and shame and emotional uh, outbursts and, and intense uh, behaviors, 
A highly sensitive child is only exhibiting them when they are missing a key set of certain skills that are actually taught through the parent-child relationship. And so when we think about that concept, it's important to notice that you are the first person who has to learn these skills, and then you teach them to your child. So uh, before I get ahead of myself, I want to just uh, capture what's really going on, right? So when you're feeling embarrassed by your child, the hidden layer to that is that you are assuming that your child's emotions are your responsibility to manage. And when I say emotions, usually we see parents associate their child's behavior as something that they're they're in charge of, right? If your kid is hitting another kid in public, you are going to feel personally responsible for that other child's physical safety because it's your kid causing physical pain to another kid, right? So logically, that makes a lot of sense because it's your job to raise your child to stay safe in public. Now, if your child isn't hitting other children or isn't yelling in other children's faces, it still feels like a sense of responsibility for you to keep the peace, right? As a society, it's beneficial for everybody in the world to generally be respectful of each other in and uh, make decisions that aren't excessively disruptive to neighbors, uh, colleagues, coworkers, people in the community, teachers and um, you know, coaches and, and other sports people. So if your child is not responding to the general rules, social norms of society, uh, and instead they're struggling to keep it together in a public setting, then it makes sense that you would feel embarrassed by that behavior. And it makes sense that you would feel responsible to change that behavior, to correct that behavior in public. And if you are focusing on breaking out of the meltdown cycle by first trying to fix that behavior, in fact, what you are missing is the presumption that your child's emotions are your responsibility. So one thing that I think is important to understand is that when you're raising your child, you might've said something to them, maybe once or twice or a million times, it is okay to have emotions, right? You might be thinking that you're validating when you're saying this. It's okay to have emotions. It's not okay to hit, right? You're going to validate the feeling. You're not going to agree with the behavior. So at a basic level, yes, that is appropriate uh, validation for a child. And it's not what helps them change or take ownership of their behavior. And in fact, it can feel shaming for your sensitive child. So it could actually backfire. Now, is it better than punishing? Yes, that language is better than punishing. But what I really want to do right now is think more globally than just giving you specific words to correct behavior, because that is actually a downstream process. Okay, so um, it's the end of the road, I should say, of trying to correct behavior and you need to go up to the beginning of the road when this when the snowball started rolling downhill down the street. <laughs> All right, so what's at the root cause? Your child is unable to manage their emotions and deal with discomfort or frustration in a safe way, and that is their skill set that they need to learn from you. And so they already know it's not okay to hit. Your child is very observant. So telling them over and over again isn't moving the needle. You know that, right? You know that. So let's focus on what it is moving the needle. In this circumstance, it is so important for you to understand 
how you're contributing to this dynamic. And the first thing that you have to do in order to notice what you're contributing is to assess your emotional responses to your child's behavior. All right. If you're exhausted, you're also likely feeling resentful of your child's emotions or of your child's behavior or of your child's meltdowns. And this can lead to um, even more guilt because you know your child is a child, you know it's your your job to solve the problem, and yet you're stuck spinning your wheels, right? So you can start to fear that the meltdowns will never end, that they're stealing your happiness, that they're stealing your family's happiness, and It is healthy to separate yourself from the concept, the experience of having meltdowns, right? Of witnessing your child's meltdowns, because the alternative is to characterize your child as a villain, right? And so you know you're not supposed to do that. (laughs) Uh, But what's important to notice is that if you're just trying to fix this quote unquote bad thing going on in your home, which is the the frequent meltdowns, then you will continue to stay responsible for your child's behavior because you're working uh, at the at the bottom of the, the process here, all right? So another reason why you likely feel resentful or frustrated is because the experience you're having of wanting to raise a child, raise your children, lead your family, without these intense meltdowns indicates to you, or indicates to me, excuse me, that you are likely an outcome-oriented person. You are likely driven. You likely have a vision for your family that doesn't include your kid losing their mind on a multiple times a day basis, let alone multiple times a week, especially if they're over the age of four. You, you are telling yourself we should be over this by now, right? And so when that's happening, and yet you see your child in intense pain, what happens next is a perpetuation of the sense of responsibility because you're the parent. You want your, your family to be able to go to the parks and, and places and not have the, the meltdowns happen there. You want to be able to leave Saturday, run errands, go to sports, um, you know, go out to dinner, enjoy parks, whatever, uh, during the weekend, and then have your child go to school without a fight, right? And, and everything in between to not feel like it's a slog and that it's difficult. Because if you envisioned that before you had kids, you probably would have decided to have kids, right? So obviously, we can deduce that you didn't decide to have children with this experience in mind. And you're a problem solver, so you're working at it, right? But if your vision is a family that moves smoothly, is collaborative, has peace and joy regularly and argues, but it doesn't take all day to solve the problem and certainly doesn't lead to despair in a family culture, then what happens is you can start to feel inadequate, especially if you've been studying this or if you work in the field yourself and perhaps you even advise others on managing child behavior or managing mental health. For example, if you're a therapist yourself or a teacher or a a medical provider, doctor, nurse, PA, etc. And so in this experience, there isn't just a sense of inadequacy for helping your child feel better, right? And feeling like you can't do that regularly and and get out ahead of it. Uh, But it's also a sense of inadequacy if it also is tied, if it's if it's doubly tied to your identity, not just as a parent, but also as a professional. And this certain special level of heck, it can be really, really 
devastating as a parent. And and so in order to not sit there forever, I want us to be focused on noticing what it is that you need to shift first. And the first piece that you need to focus on is changing your level of responsibility, that you can help your child take responsibility for their behavior. And you need to be able to do this by shifting out of dread. All right. Um, your child can sense it. Your child can notice that if you are trying to be patient and your patience is being perpetuated by stuffing feelings and just holding it together, metaphorically gripping the steering wheel, your child will sense that tension. All right. So you need to be able to shift out of that sense of dread, the walking on eggshells mentality. Secondly, is you need to trust your kid to figure it out. Now, if you're parenting an eight-year-old, for example, uh, it's likely that you've had six-ish years where you've helped your child try to figure it out and they haven't been able to get there yet, right? So uh, that's, a, that's a totally different mindset shift than moving out of dread is repairing trust and repairing trust with your child between you and your child. Not just that you can trust them, but that they can trust you to not solve problems for them through lecturing or punishing or, or anything like that. So you have to be able to shift uh, your perspective, but also your approach where you're sending the message to your child that they will fail and it's up to them to move out of that level of failure. So you have to be okay with allowing your child to fail, experience uh, disappointment, experience frustration, and witness it without trying to fix it. And then thirdly is that you need to be aware and, and stop trying to correct their behavior in the moment with a sense of urgency, all right? So I'm not saying don't hold limits. Sensitive children, like all children, need to know if their behavior is self-destructive. They need to know if their behavior is destructive towards relationships. So it is not the time to stay passive or to quote unquote, let your child hit other people or yell or scream, right? However, what we find is that parents tend to go from one end of the pendulum, passivity, to the other end, pressuring. And what happens is that that level of urgency is coming from a sense of reactivity. I told you, you're not allowed to yell at your sister like this. This has got to stop. Why can't you just stop, right? And it just turns into a lecture by um, default, not on purpose. You're not intentionally planning your lectures for the day, right? So it is important to stay out of that. And what that means is that you need to move into more middle ground and you need to help your child see and think from a growth mindset perspective and help them build resilience. Now, sensitive children end the meltdown cycle with their parents when their parents empower them to be playful in the face of difficult challenges. And this requires a lot more work on your end than it does for the child. Children are naturally playful, right? So when we think about how children learn, they naturally learn better and more effectively when they're playful and they naturally solve problems when they're curious. The problem is that your child isn't curious when they're feeling frustrated. And they're, they don't know how to move from frustration to curiosity, okay? And this is where you need to help your child focus. So in, in order to break out of that pattern, you need a new set of skills because telling them to feel differently doesn't help them feel differently.
They have to be able to notice their emotions. They have to be able to notice how they're thinking about a problem. And they have to be able to notice how they're thinking about themselves, solving the problem and feeling capable of solving the problem. And, and all of that needs to be happening in order for your child to creatively solve their problems regularly without your direct and specific handholding and direction. All right, so I want to use uh, an example here because I, I can imagine that sometime in your uh, career, your work career, you have had the experience of learning about the marshmallow challenge. Now, I'm going to briefly go over that because I'm not going to spend the whole time talking about the, the challenge, but just in case you haven't heard of it, uh, I'll, I'll do a quick review. Okay, it's a great anecdote for managers um, and for leaders in the career field to uh, to pay attention to. It's got a lot of great uh, leadership lessons in terms of being successful at work. But I want to apply it to the the understanding of raising children here. So the the challenge is um, people were given groups of people were given um, uh, raw spaghetti. Okay, so uncooked spaghetti and then marshmallows, and they were told to build a tower as tall as it, they can make it, all right? So build the tallest tower you can with marshmallows and spaghetti. Um, and so they, they grouped a couple of, of people together. There was a group of CEOs, so one would expect high-powered professionals, problem solvers, natural problem solvers, right, visionaries, CEOs, okay? Then we've got a group of CEOs plus one administrator, Right. And then we have a group of children, kindergartners. And what they found is that of the three groups, the CEOs alone, adults who are problem solvers and fixers, did the poorest at the at the that. So spoiler alert, you can go read about it. Marshmallow challenge. The CEOs, business owners, adults working together did the worst at this the next worst was uh, the CEO plus an admin. Okay, so you've got a, a, a uh, somebody who can be thinking more systematically, um, somebody who can uh, pay attention to some different details, right? We need administrators who are very detail-oriented, who keep the visionaries on track because visionaries, myself included, um, I have to surround myself with more structured thinkers and uh, more systematic routine focused uh, people who, who thrive in that because I tend to go, go, go uh, and can get a little Machiavellian when it comes to getting to my outcomes. Now, uh, that works just fine when I'm running a business. It's not something I can use when I'm parenting, right? So I've had to shift my perspective, shift my approach to life. It certainly doesn't work in, in a marriage, right? So in order to be healthily, healthily married, I had, had to learn um, how, to, how to shift my nature, right? So because the strengths that I have that work in some avenues of my life and then obviously don't work in, in every avenue. And, and, and obviously as a good leader and a, and a good boss I have, and a manager, I have to be able to communicate with my team and, and slow down and not do it all myself, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to reach the number of families that we've helped as well as more systematic solve this problem for multiple families at once when we work with our clients. And so uh, that, that's the leadership quality, to be able to balance the vision with the step-by-step-by-step -by -step -by -step process to make it happen and, and help your clients create sustainably, sustainable result, right? So a combo pack of somebody who's detail-oriented and somebody who's outcome-oriented, when you put those two heads together, 
you may, you can make a really great team. And so they did better than just than the than the big picture thinkers, right? Okay, great. So we've got this understanding. Now, who did the best at solving the problem? The kindergartners. They built the highest tower. Why? Because children are naturally more curious. They are naturally more focused on doing rather than thinking, which makes them less inhibited when they are emotionally healthy. Okay. So there's a difference between inhibition and a lack of impulse, in impulse control. Highly sensitive children tend to swing from one end of the extreme to the next. They're either very impulsive when they're stuck in the meltdown cycle, right? Or they're very inhibited when they're stuck in the meltdown cycle and they swing. So a pendulum, um, naturally doesn't stay in one spot. That's why I use this language pendulum. It's not a spectrum where you just like land in one spot. It's a pendulum. You swing from one extreme to the next, right? So you've heard me talk about this pendulum concept before in different avenues, especially related to parenting and co-parenting. Um, and, but in this dynamic, we're talking about children being resilient and a resilient mind is curious, calm, and connected and thinking about possibility. A resilient mind notices a sense of internal hardiness and external capacity for growth and asking for support, right? So there's connection, connection going on there as well as an internal sense of identity. Highly sensitive children stuck in the meltdown cycle do not have this core piece to their identity in a way that is ingrained. That comes from their parents. You learn that. You learn how to teach your child this and then your child believes it. Why? Because a child doesn't believe that they are worthy if their parents are not showing them rather than telling them, showing them how they can trust themselves and trust themselves to be worthy of success and, and to be able to persist through challenge. So that dynamic leads to low self-esteem. It le leads to low self-concept. Everybody hates me. I'm not good enough. I'm a bad kid, right? Those are all self, uh, self-esteem issues. Self-concept is I can't do it. I'm not good at this. I'm not good. I'm not a good problem solver. So identifying yourself as someone versus identifying yourself as, um, how you interact with other people, self-esteem, self-concept, two different things. So the focus here is on noticing that a child learns their sense of identity through their relationship with their parent. And again, as I mentioned before, this is not your fault. You did not know what you did not know until right now listening to this show. And so the great opportunity is that I just taught you something. And so that means that you can learn more, right? So if you want to learn more about how to break out of this meltdown cycle and notice the daily meltdowns end when parents empower sensitive kids to playfully, to be playfully resilient in the face of challenge, then I encourage you to book a call with our team. We're happy to walk you through exactly where you're stuck, get clarity on what's really driving your behavior in the family dynamic, where you're worried what's about what's driving your child's behavior and get clarity on what's truly driving your child's behavior, and then understanding more about what the goals are for the family and, and whether or not your goals are realistic and, ex and something you can be expecting given your, your family's needs. And if your goals are something that we help our clients achieve, we would, on that very same call, if you book a call with us, speak with you about how we can help you specifically, all right? And then 
once that's all figured out, uh, then you can decide to work with us on that very same conversation because you've already been trying to solve this problem. So why wait, right? It's your time to finally feel like this is solvable and that you are the one influencing your child, right? You need to be able to not just trust that, you need to know how to make it happen and uh, systematically. And then next, if we feel like your family's needs based on your application to even talk with us or based on a conversation, is your family's needs are not um, relevant to the problem that we solve here at MTC, then we will send you in a more appropriate direction. All right, there might be something you need to take care of before you. it would be appropriate for you to work with us or instead of working with us altogether. And we are happy to have that conversation with you. Uh, happy to point you in the right direction and make sure that you're on the right path for your family. That is so, so important that we are telling families that we can help them only if we know that we can help them. And so if that is what you are looking for, you're looking for not just that clarity, but also the, the process to be able to, to break out of that pattern, then uh, book a call, okay? Now, I uh, look forward to, to having that conversation with you and make it a great day. Bye. Thank you for joining me on this episode of How to Parent Your Highly Sensitive Child Like a Ninja. We release a brand new episode every week, so be sure to click subscribe. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in seeing if you're a fit to work with us at MTC, here's what I want you to do next. Head on over to meganthompsoncoaching.com backslash call and book an appointment with our team. We'll get on the phone for about 60 minutes and we'll get you clarity on where you're stuck in parenting your sensitive child or teen what your goals are for supporting your child's development. And if we can help you, we'll get you started on knowing exactly what to do to eliminate that meltdown cycle. Eliminating the daily meltdown cycle does not happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. And we've helped hundreds of clients from all over the world end that cycle in as little as eight weeks. So to see if we can help you do the same, head on over to meganthompsoncoaching.com backslash call. I'm Megan Thompson. And we look forward to speaking to you soon.